Good morning, everybody. Merry, can we get one big Merry Christmas? So I'll say Merry Christmas and you all say it back to me. Ready? Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. <sighs> yes. Oh, my goodness. I, I start saying Merry Christmas. Like, I'm like wiping Thanksgiving leftovers off my face. I'm like, Merry Christmas. I love saying, I just love the season. I love celebrating. I love the lights. I love uh, this week, Eden and I like sat, we, t- we turned on the fire and we sat and just looked at the 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 Christmas tree for like 15 minutes, which getting a four-year-old to sit still for anything for 15 minutes that isn't like Daniel Tiger is incredible. So it was, it was a really sweet moment. Uh, today we get to wrap up our Advent series and we get to go over love. Uh, remember, Rick kicked us off at the beginning of the month, the four Sundays leading up to Christmas with peace. And then I taught on hope. And last week, Jonathan taught on joy. And today we get to wrap up Uh, talking about love. And one of the things that's just been an impression on my heart this whole series is that if we think about our lives or even the lives of the people we admire, um, a lot of the people I admire, their lives are marked by peace, are marked by hope and joy and love. And I look and I think I would love for my life to be marked by these things as well. And I think that's what the Spirit is doing among us right now, is reinforcing these things, saying we have access to these beautiful pieces of God's character because of who he is and what he's done and because we choose to follow him. So today we're gonna go and dive into love. So turn in your Bibles to 1 John chapter four, and I'm gonna ask Rebecca to come on up and read the passage for us. We're gonna be doing verses seven through 12 today. Okay, so 1 John 4, verse 7. God is love. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. And in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation of our sins. Beloved, if God is so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Thanks, Rebecca. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for who you are and for what you've done, and we celebrate the fact that we get to gather together and worship you and hear from you. Um, Thank you that we know what love is because of you. Help us, Lord, to to receive your love deep in our hearts today. We, We love you. Amen. This passage in 1 John is one of my favorite uh, passages in the Bible. And and for some backdrop, this was uh, written by the Apostle John. And we think this was written after the sacking of Jerusalem in AD 60. We think it was maybe written in Ephesus. Um, and he was writing kind of near the end of his life. Not quite. He still has to, you know, be exiled to Patmos uh, and all that. But he's, he's writing. and You can kind of see it throughout the book. He says, little children. Little ones, dear ones, beloved ones, kind of like a grandfather talking to his grandkids saying, hey, I've got some lessons I want to teach you. And uh, John is actually known as the apostle of love. It's just one of, it's one of his deals. It's one of his favorite things to talk about. He even refers to himself uh, in the gospel of John as the disciple who Jesus loved. So this is just one of his things as he talks about 
love. And um, the th I'm sure many of you have heard before the three Greek words for love. Uh, we can go ahead and throw them up on the screen. We've got phileo, we've got eros, and we've got agape. And phileo, think Philadelphia. It's, it's fraternal love. It's brotherly love. And Philadelphia is known as the city of brotherly love. That's what it was named after. Eros, this is where we get the word erotic. This is passion. This is uh, romantic love. This is... Uh, yeah, eros. Uh, and then we have the word agape. And agape, I think the best definition I've ever heard of agape is agape describes God's love for us. It's, it's God's loving disposition that he has towards his people is agape. But it's kind, of a, it's kind of a hard word to fully wrap our minds around. And actually, John uses it every time you see in this passage beloved or loved or God loves. It's all this word agape. And uh, he uses it 15 times in just these few short verses. And as we've done with the rest of the series, the Bible Project has their Advent series where they go through peace, hope, joy, and love. And their one on love goes through the definition of agape. So let's go ahead and watch, watch this video together. So if you've heard of Jesus, you probably know about one of his famous teachings called the Golden Rule. Do to others what you would want them to do to you. And this, actually, is a restatement of something else that Jesus said, that the meaning of life is to love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, that's really beautiful, but what does he mean exactly by the word love? It's an unclear word in English, because you can love your mom and you can love pizza. And if the word love means the same thing in both of those cases, your mom's going to feel real bad. So what did Jesus mean in his language? Well, first of all, this love your neighbor phrase is a quotation from the Hebrew scriptures, where the word for love is ahava. However, the language Jesus spoke and taught in from day to day it was a cousin language of Hebrew, that is Aramaic, in which the word for love is rachmah. But then, as Jesus' followers spread his teachings around the world, they translated them into Greek using the word agape. But here's what's fascinating. The earliest followers of Jesus who wrote the books of the New Testament in Greek, they didn't learn the meaning of agape by looking it up in ancient dictionaries. Rather, they looked to the teachings of Jesus and the story of his life to redefine their very concept of love. So one time, Jesus was asked about the most important command in the Jewish scriptures. And he first quoted from the ancient prayer in the Torah called the Shema. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart. So love for God is the most important thing. But then Jesus quickly followed up by saying another command from the Torah was also the most important. To love your neighbor as yourself. So which is the most important? Loving God or loving your neighbor? Jesus' answer is yes. To ask the question means you don't get his point. For Jesus, they are two sides of the same coin. Your love for God will be expressed by your love for people and vice versa, they're inseparable. So this makes it clear that for Jesus, agape love is not primarily a feeling for someone else that happens to you, like our phrase, I fell in love. For Jesus, love is action. It's a choice that you make to seek the well-being of people other than yourself. Jesus also went on to teach that genuine love for God and others means seeking people's well-being without expecting anything in return, especially from people who are in difficult situations who can't repay you even if they wanted to. According to Jesus, this kind of generous love reflects the very heartbeat of God. And he took this even further. Jesus said that the ultimate standard of authentic love is how well you treat the person that you can't stand. Or in his words, you shall love your enemy and do good to them, expecting nothing in return.
For Jesus, this kind of enemy-embracing love imitates the very character of God himself. Now, we wouldn't be talking about Jesus still today if he had only said things like love your enemy. This is how he actually lived. Jesus was constantly helping and serving the people around him in very practical and tangible ways. And he consistently moved towards poor and hurting people who couldn't benefit him in return. He showed love for the forgotten ones, the people who usually fall through the cracks. And when Jesus eventually marched into Jerusalem, he made himself an enemy of the leaders of his people by accusing them of hypocrisy and corruption. But then instead of attacking his enemies to overthrow them, he allowed them to kill him. Jesus died for the selfishness and corruption of his enemies because he loved them. After Easter morning, Jesus and then his followers claimed that it was the power of God's love for the world that was revealed in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. As the Apostle Paul put it, God demonstrated his own agape for us in this. While we were still sinners, the Messiah died for us. Or in the words of the Apostle John, God's own agape was revealed when he sent his one and only son into the world so that through him we could have life. And for John, then, this leads naturally to the conclusion, beloved ones, if that's how God has loved us, then we ought to show love for one another. So Christian faith involves trusting that at the center of the universe is a being overflowing with love for his world, which means that the purpose of human existence is to receive this love that has come to us in Jesus and then to give it back out to others, creating an ecosystem of others-focused, self-giving love. And that's the New Testament meaning of agape love. Yeah. If you want to watch that video another time, it's, I mean, it's so dense and so packed. You, uh, we'll send out, we send out a weekly email and we can include the video link uh, to this in the email. You can also just Google it. If you just look up the Bible Project, Advent series of the Bible Project, Love, and the Word Study will come up. You can watch it again later. So that is agape. And that is the word that he uses throughout this passage. Look down at your Bibles with me. We'll start in verse 7. Beloved. That's literally like agape ones. Let us agape one another, for agape is from God. And whoever loves, whoever agapes, has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not agape does not know God, because God is agape. This is how we know him. This is one of the ways that we know him. This is one of the ways that he reveals himself to the world is through this agape love. And then look at verse 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. Manifest is, is a really funny word. It means like just really tangibly like present. And it's, you think about like a manifest of a plane or of a ship. It has the exact list of every passenger on board, and it has to be precise. It has to be exact. So the manifest, the manifestation of God's love for us is this. He sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. We cannot question the agape love that God has for us because of the manifestation of Jesus that he came. And that's what we celebrate every year. That's why there's lights. That's why there's trees. That's why we're doing all this is it's a big deal. We're remembering, we're celebrating again that God loves us. And let's keep going in the passage. Uh, Verse 11, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. 
No one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. There's five main lessons we can draw from this passage. I want to throw them up. Number one, we should love each other. Got it? Next, love comes from God. Got it? Next, God is love. Next, God loves us. Next, well, since God loves us, we should love each other. We good? Sermon over. <laughs> it's, it's really simple. And, and I would be shocked if I had to say anything about love today that you haven't heard before. I would be shocked. But the, uh, have you guys heard the old saying, the longest journey is 14 inches from your head to your heart? Is I find myself not believing this truth and, and, I, and I find myself not living like I'm loved. And my hope today is that we would all walk out of here not just knowing we're loved, but believing we're loved. Experiencing God's love for us. Because we know, we know this is true, but sometimes I don't believe it. And I think some of you may do the same thing. And here's, and here's what I mean by that. So, like this last week, I... Um, some of you know people like me and some of you know me personally and there are me and others like me in this world we do a lot of this thing called talking and we like hearing our own voice and we think other people must then too right so we just talk a lot and people who talk a lot put their foot in their mouth constantly right some of you are nodding because you have personal experience and others of you try to avoid me at parties and that's okay um, and I uh, this last week I was having a conversation and I found out um, that I had said something that really offended someone, really rubbed them the wrong way. And that's, ne it's never my heart. That's never my intention. That's not what I'm ever trying to do. And it just, it just honestly, it wrecked me. It's just like, ugh, again. And what, what I started to do was I started this, this shame spiral. I started telling myself all the times that I've done this before. I started reminding myself, hey, remember this time? Hey, do you remember this time? I mean, I am, I'm, do you guys, okay, I'm, an, I'm just an idiot, okay? I just am. I was at my last job. This was uh, maybe eight years ago, 10 years ago. I'm not, um, I'm not good at beating around the bush. I'm not good at that. I don't have that bone. I, I was trying to get my buddy Tyler to ask the girl he was dating to marry him because she was amazing and he was going to be really stupid if he didn't ask her to marry him. And Tyler, someone was like, Tyler, how do you feel about Daniel being so upfront about that? He goes, well, Daniel doesn't really beat around the bush. Daniel picks up the bush and beats you with it. <laughs> right? So anyways, I'm at work and there's this, there's this gal and it's her first week. It's her first week in the job, and she's done something. And I was there next to her, and I saw what she did. I was like, oh, no, no, no. We do not want to do it that way. If you do it that way, that's going to wreck everything. What we need to do is we need to do it this way, because if we do it that way, this is going to go wrong. This is going to go wrong. This is going to go wrong. Are you okay? And she's like, uh, just a minute. And she leaves and goes to the bathroom. And I'm thinking, was it something I said? I don't. <laughs> what? And so she comes back. And I go, are you okay? And she goes, yeah, I'm fine. I said, did I say something? She said, no, 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 it wasn't you. And I was like, oh, okay. Anyways. Um, <laughs> and I just kept going. I just kept going. And so this last week, this pops up. And I start doing my shame spiral. I 
I did something bad, I am bad. I've done this before, I remember doing this before. I've done this before and I've done this before and these are all the times I've done this before and this is what I do and I'm bad. I don't know if any of you have ever done a, a, a shame spiral like that, but it's, it's not a healthy place to be. No, David just goes, no, I've never done that. Yeah. <laughs> We're going to take a quick detour into some social theory. There's a PhD. Uh, she's a professor out of the University of Houston. She's a shame and courage and vulnerability researcher. Her name is Brene Brown. Some of you might have heard of her. Um, and she has, um, oh, well, don't get ahead of me. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, okay, that's true. No, it's true. Uh, and uh, she's got a book called The Gifts of Imperfection. And in this book, she defines shame as this. Shame is the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. This, this is her description of shame. And what she does, she's a qualitative, not quantitative researcher. So that, what that means is she conducts interviews with people until she finds patterns with certain groups of people. So as an example, so she has, she has over 11,000 data points of conversations where she records things. And what they do is they look for patterns until they can predict these patterns in new conversations they have. Here's what I mean. So she is in, in these 11,000 data points, as an example, for everyone who self-describes themselves as joyful, they get everyone in this group and they say, okay, now we've got these data points. What is the linking factor between all these people who describe themselves as joyful? And what they found was every single person who described themselves as joyful had a practice of gratitude. They would either say something they're grateful for every night before bed. They would say it all together at the dinner table. They would have a gratitude journal. They had not just an attitude like, hey, I'm generally grateful, but a practice of gratitude. Or another one is they had a group of compassionate people. And they said, okay, these people, they're all compassionate. What is the linking factor? And they, these people were all over the map. They, it took them forever to find the linking factor. What linked them together was all these people had really excellent boundaries. And those boundaries were, made them able to be compassionate. So anyways, using that type of research, uh, this is her finding. We can go to the next slide. As I conducted my interviews, I realized the only one, that only one thing separated the men and women who felt a deep sense of love and belonging from the people who seemed to be struggling for it. There was one thing that separated people who felt love and belonging from people who struggled with it. That one thing is the belief in their worthiness. It's as simple and as complicated as this. If we want to fully experience love and belonging, we must believe that we are worthy of love and belonging. And I see this everywhere in my life. I see this when I'm in conflict with someone and I shy away because I don't, I don't want to be unloved. I don't want to feel worthless. I don't want to feel like I don't belong. I don't confess sin to my community group because what if they knew? What if they found out? Would I belong? And so what I do then is I construct my life around trying to achieve things to be worthy. I, I do this and I do this and I do this and I do this so that I'm worthy of being loved and I have a place in this world and I can belong. I've got my car, I've got my house. Okay, I'm good. Good, oh, I'm gonna be present 
I'm going to be present with my kids so that I can, I can, I can belong. I can be here. I'm okay. And there's, and there's two sides to that that are really, really negative. The first side, the first major problem is all these things are temporal. You can lose your job. You can crash your car. You can lose your house. And if I'm basing my sense of worth, like how, of my belonging on these things, then those things go away and suddenly I feel worthless and like I don't belong. The second thing is, by the way, and I find myself doing this, if, if I'm doing these things, because this is how the world works, I'm doing these things, I'm coming to these achievements so that I belong, when I see people who aren't doing these things, maybe they're not worthy of love. Maybe they don't belong. Well, if they only had their act together. And so suddenly, I'm building my life on things that don't matter and basing my worthiness and being loved on all these things that are temporal and I'm judging others by the same standard. Whew. Someone save me. That's awful. It's horrific. Why? Let's look at this. If we want to fully experience love and belonging, we must believe that we are worthy of love and belonging. Look with me. Sorry. <clears throat> Look with me at verse 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. God loves you. And God loves me. And we know it's true. We know it's true. He sent his son so that we could live. Because he loves us. He, he loves us. The creator loves you. And when that journey slowly happens from what I know trickles down to what I experience, it, it turns that shame spiral. It just flips it on its head. I'm not bad. I just did something bad. You know, I, I need to go make that right. I need to go rectify that situation. I'm loved. That's the, this is the core truth about Daniel Golder. I am loved by God. That's who I am. Yeah, I'm going to screw up, and God loves me. Eden, our daughter, has started doing this thing where she will, she'll mess up or she'll do, do something, and she'll realize it, and she'll start weeping and just go, it's all my fault. Like, oh, sweetie. Yes. Um, <laughs> but we say, that's okay. You screw up. I screw up. And I love you. Your, your belonging in this family is not, is not just balancing on whether you screw up or don't screw up. You're here. I love you. Nothing's going to change that. 
You're here and I love you. I love you. I love you. I love you. You belong. You're mine. I love you. And that's what God is saying to us. You got a father just bending over his daughter, bending over his son, saying, I love you. Yeah, you screwed up. That's okay. We can make that better. I love you. You belong. You don't have to worry about being rejected because of what happened. I love you. And we know that God loves us because of verse 9. Every year, the whole Christmas season, we're celebrating the fact that we are loved. It's incredible. Man. And then the flip side of that, the flip, the beautiful, remember there's two problems with building your your whole life over here, of judging other people and building your life on not being loved. The flip side is, look at verse both 7 and 11. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And verse 11, beloved, if God loved us, we also ought to love one another. The person who screwed you over, the person who lied to you, the person who backstabbed you, God sent Jesus for them too. If we are so loved, we then turn around and love. We love passionately. We love fervently. We agape love. And we step into the story. We say it doesn't have to be a shame spiral. We can, st- we can write a new story. We can write a story where I'm loved and you're loved. And we love each other and we love God. So, again, I'm sure there's nothing new under the sun. But, oh, one last thing. Look at verse 12. No one has ever seen God. And there's, there's an implied but here. Some of your Bibles have a semicolon. Some of your Bibles say but. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, no one's ever seen God, but if we love one another, man, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. The Greek word there for perfected is telos. It means completed. It means matured at its end, full, filled. God's love is perfected when it's expressed by and to his people. That's what we get to do as the family of God. That's what we get to do here at Colossae. That's what we get to do here in Sherwood or Tualatin or King City or Newburgh. We get to love each other really, really well. Let's all stand together and pray. Lord, we thank you that you love us. We thank you that you're with us. We thank you that we know that you love us because you sent Jesus. And we're we're overwhelmed by your love, Lord. So now as as we come to the tables, as the elders give us your body, your blood, we 
remember your love and Lord, help us experience your love this morning in a powerful way. Amen.